I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Until a few years ago, all I knew about World War I was that it happened before World War II. Now I believe what started in the summer of 1914 never really ended. Most of us know that Germany, France, Russia, and eventually the United States were involved in that first world war, but many other nations fell into the bloody morass and the terrible effects on the vanquished, lesser-known nations continued well after the armistice of November 1918. New borderlines were drawn literally in the sand by the victors without regard to the people actually living in those areas. And while many may have a vague understanding that millions died on the battlefields of the Western Front and the Eastern Front, who among us knew that about three-quarters of the population of the Armenian nation were wiped out by the Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey. As author David Frumkin put it in his widely praised history of World War I and its aftermath, a, a peace to end all peace, he said, Rape and beating were commonplace. Those who were not killed at once were driven through mountains and deserts without food, drink, or shelter. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians eventually succumbed or were killed. Why? Were the Armenians belligerents in what was then called the Great War? Why did it happen? And why did the government of Turkey fight so hard against recognizing what the world can see as genocide? Quoting now from an article on the topic of the New York Times, quote, to Turks, what happened in 1915 was, at most, just one more messy piece of a very messy war that spelled the end of a once powerful empire. They reject the conclusions of historians and the term genocide saying there was no premeditation in the deaths, no systematic attempt to destroy a people. Indeed, Turkey today, in Turkey today, it remains a crime, insulting Turkishness, to even raise the issue of what happened to the Armenians, end of quote. Why should what happened 105 years ago, after the fact, matter today? And how does the lack of recognition of the genocide affect U.S. policy toward Turkey and its fascist government of Recep Erdogan? What interests hold sway over American military policy in this region? With us to discuss the meaning of never again to Armenians in specific and the world's smaller nations in general is Peter Balakian, professor, writer, poet, Armenian genocide expert, and Pulitzer Prize winner for uh, his poetry, along with Karen Murphy, Ph.D., director of international strategy at the terrific website Facing History and Ourselves. Well, thanks, Karen. Karen and Peter, for being with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Good to be here. Well, there's a large Armenian population, and specifically in Los Angeles, called Little Armenia, I believe, and they've pushed for recognition of Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, April 24th. 
What, what is the status of that? Did it happen in 2020, or is it still something that's being pushed for? Um, you know, I, honestly, here, I, I have to say that I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, and I really am not even aware that there has been a um, uh, an effort to... I mean, let, let me back up and say... April 24 is the day the Armenian genocide is commemorated right. worldwide. Yes. And the, the, re the reason for this is because it was on that night in 1915 that the Turkish government rounded up about 250 cultural leaders, Armenian cultural leaders and intellectuals, um, deporting them to a prison uh, several hundred miles to the east of Istanbul, then Constantinople, and murdering most of them. And mm. it's an important, for those who study genocide, it's an important episode to understand because it, it lets us know that um, perpetrators see the cultural leadership as important to wipe out first because it's a way of ripping the tongue out of the culture or mm. the, uh, the targeted group or a way of beheading, taking its, its intellectual head off. And so, you know, that's... Um, that's a formative event, April 24. So it's commemorated worldwide. Um, and every, um, you know, I, I don't think it's plausible that the United States would make it a, right. a national day, nor do I think the Holocaust has a, I mean, is a day of remembrance, but it's not a national day. So right. I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what to, I'm not sure this is the actually, this is the right way to put it. Well, Los Angeles, there's a big Armenian population, so to me, it makes sense in L.A. And no, but I don't. Think they're asking the the U.S. government to. I mean, I think the the request has been with the president in making the April 24 statement, use the word genocide uh -huh. in the statement, and, uh -huh. and that hasn't happened because the White uh -huh. House remains frightened of Turkish. Sure anger and uh, and doing business, you know, doing business with Turkey, um, you know, this becomes uh, an issue that sends the Turkish state into real hysteria. Yeah. So maybe that's it. I, you know, that, that, that presidents don't want to use the word, but, right. you know, we do have the, the good, we do have the good news that in the fall of 2019, both Congress and the Senate passed Armenian genocide resolutions. Yes. Um, almost unanimously after years of being afraid of Turkish pressure and Turkish anger. Uh, finally, the switch was tripped. It's kind of a, it's kind of a gratifying. If you work in this field, it's kind of gratifying to see that the mail has gotten read, you know, that the, the scholarship that's been done over the course of decades now really mm. has amounted to a lot. And it's scholarship done by scholars in, Dozens of languages on every continent in dozens of different uh, nations, and so uh, that that pays off. And um, I suppose the, the one thing you noted in your introduction was that yeah, Turkey has been locked into rejecting the uh, truth of this historical event and has fought it with propaganda that it has disseminated globally for over 100 years. And at one level, you know, the motivation here is the 
a refusal to deal with reparations. And that's the bottom line. Interesting. Well, it often comes down to money. As Bob Dylan said so long ago, money doesn't talk, it swears. And we do a lot. That's good. We do a lot of yeah. business with with uh, Turkey, and if I I'm, if I remember correctly, in the whole Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1961, uh, the, the U.S. had missiles in Turkey aimed at Moscow, and it's much less. I mean, the, the big news here was that Kennedy got the missiles out of Cuba, but Khrushchev got the missiles out of Turkey, as I recall. So it was a bigger deal over there. So Turkey's been involved with U.S. foreign policy in that area for a very long time. And you That's know, true, of course. Yeah, they, they've been an important client state in U.S.-NATO politics. Yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely true. But, but I will say that um, the issue here is Turkey's terror of paying reparations and of dealing properly with the extermination of the Armenians, in, in large part, too, because there is a country on its northeastern border called Armenia, mm-hmm. an independent state, mm-hmm. which has survived against all odds, in Amazing. a way. It's a quite quite powerful story of cultural survival, a little bit like the story of Israel's survival uh, after the Holocaust. Um, you know, so... I think Turkey, the issue of denial is one that's really large in Turkish extreme nationalist identity or Turkish Mm. deep state identity. And so part of it is monetary, and yet part of it is also psychological, because Uh all nations nations create big lies, right? I mean, the U.S. has its share of big lies, and and when you're not a functioning democracy, which I I, I think Turkey is not— It's it's hard to dig out of big lies when you've socialized a lot of your society to obey authoritarian, you know, orders. So you have two issues holding Turkey back on this. Well, I did want to ask how how it all happened. I mean, you know, for those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about uh, uh, the Ottoman now Turkey uh, crushing. I think genocide, really, of uh, the Armenian people back in 1915. And why it matters today? Well, because never again has to mean something. But back then, just for a little historical background, the Ottoman Empire had been big, but at the start of the 20th century, uh, it was really crumbling. Then came the Young Turk government, which joined Germany in fighting against Russia. And that this is where the then- Two million people from Armenia come into the story. How did okay? So the Turkish government was with Germany and fighting against Russia. So what was the Caucasus there? I guess I, I've never been there. I believe they're somewhere on the border between uh, uh, Turkey and and Russia, and uh, maybe perhaps that's where Armenia is. Pardon my ignorance. What happened in the Caucasus back then, which was to provide the spark for what happened? Some kind of battle that the Turkish people, the Turkish army, lost. Well, you know, I would, I, I would back up for one further step. Sure. To say that what preceded the explosions and reprisals at the Turkish-Russian border in 1914-15, at the beginning of World War One, was a decades-long civil rights movement. I think that's a fair and good term for it. Mm. Um, That was 
that was activated by the leadership, the progressive leadership of the Armenian population in Turkey in the 1880s and 90s. And, and the, the civil rights movement was demanding constitutional reform, and especially reform for non-Muslim minorities in the Ottoman Empire, meaning Christians and Jews. There was mm -hmm. a much smaller Jewish population, sure. but certainly that was an important population. Greeks, Armenians, Syriac, and Assyrian Christians. These four Christian minority groups were really, um, you know, along with the Jews as non-Muslims, were not accorded equal rights under the Ottoman um, mm -hmm. legal and social and cultural systems. Um, and there's a lot to say about that. I mean, there's a whole checklist of things to note. I mean, for example, Christians and Jews didn't have any rights in an in, a, in an Islamic court of law. Well, that meant that anybody belonging to those minority groups could be <clears throat> abducted, extorted, fleeced uh, with the flick of a wrist. All you had to do was take take a, a Greek person or a Jewish person or, or, or an Armenian person to court, make a claim against them, and then you you were you know subject to any reprisal that the local mayor or governor wanted. So you know, this is an enormously asymmetrical political and cultural and social situation. Armenians began mounting a protest movement, and and they were really quite edgy, I have to say, in doing this, because they were taking to the streets. Mm. Um, they were passing petitions that they wanted the European powers to see um, because they were asking for European intervention, mm -hmm. including Russian intervention. And Armenians in certain areas were refusing to pay the fourth and fifth um, uh, round of illegal taxes to the local uh, governors uh, and regional you know, authorities. So... So the Armenians between the 1880s and the 1910s have become a disliked minority population. <clears throat> and though they've been peaceful for the most part, and they're a very proportionately a pretty successful minority population and proportionately a fairly affluent one. There are some parallels here to draw oh, with boy. the Jews in various European countries. And so... When World War One broke out, you know, the Turkish leadership, you mentioned the Young Turk triumvirate, Talat, Enver, and Cemal were their names. And they saw this as an opportunity to solve what was known as the Armenian question, or, yeah, you know, the Armenian problem. Right. And so, and so, um, and so the, the decision to systematically liquidate the Armenian population, which was between about 2 and 2.5 million people, um, really was well-planned and well-orchestrated. Uh -huh. There's a, a lot A lot of the records are now um, available because of the great work of some Turkish scholars. I mentioned Tanner Akcham in particular because he has done such great work uh, with Ottoman Ministry of the Interior Archives. So you can now see, it's now translated into English. This wasn't true 15 years ago. Mm. You can now see how well-planned the uh -huh. uh, 
the, 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 the genocide was. And so that the excuse to kill, uh, the excuse, shall we say, to round up and arrest and deport Armenians in 1915 was done, you know, uh, under a pretext. Right. And the pretext was that some Armenians, as war broke out, some Armenians on the Russian-Turkish border defected into the Russian army. Ethnic Armenians in the Russian army were killing Turks in battle. So this was used, you sure. know, as a as a kind of, um, uh, you know, it is somewhat of a conspiracy theory. All the Armenians of the empire now have to go because of this. And, right. and indeed, it was it was fairly well planned, and um, mm. it was very well planned. Yeah, and that that's... so that's a, I mean that's a little bit of context, and there's, oh, there's a lot to more to say. You can you can stop me oh, where you want. We'll we'll do it. There's there is a lot to talk about. It. My understanding was, and I, again, I I'm not sure, but there was a battle that it was in the Caucasus, and the Turks. It was really terrible weather, and a lot of the Turks froze to death, and a lot of them had they died, and so ah. Here's a spark. Here's an excuse. Let's blame the Armenians and kill them all. I think yeah, so the Battle <laughs> of Sarakamis that you're referring to um, was a disaster for, yeah, for the Turks. Enver, Enver uh -huh. was the, um, the, the minister of war. He was one of the three yeah, tri of the triumvirate, and he was disgraced in the in the in the law in the in the uh, battle at Sarakamish, as, as, as you're noting. It's it's right over the Turkish border in the Caucasus, and that area was mostly Armenian, at least. But uh -huh. Armenia was just part of the Russian Empire then. There was no Armenia. It was just, you know, the Russian right the, the Russian the, the Armenian province. Of, of the Russian Empire, but um, yeah, the Battle of Sarakamish was used as one of those yes. pretexts to say, "Okay, look, we have we have evidence now that Armenians are disloyal and seditious, and um, uh. and we're going to start we're going to really start acting on the plan." And and the first part of the plan came out of the Battle of Sarakamish because um, all the Armenian soldiers in the Ottoman army were stripped of their weapons and thrown into labor battalions where they were forced to do scut work, <clears throat> mending <clears throat> railroads or cleaning latrines. And from there, they were just gunned down. They yeah, were, it was pretty, they were, uh, they were pretty, pretty amazing, really, how that can happen. But, you know, there's got to be some sort of incident, and I put that word in quotes, to start yes. basically every war. Some, sometimes it's called a false flag operation. The, you know, the Nazis did that in Poland. And some would say that happened at, uh, in the American uh, Civil War. Uh, but uh, for those who may have, I mean, it happens pretty much in every war. Uh, there was the Tonkin Gulf incident, which, of course, didn't happen in Vietnam. Anyway, uh, Bert Cohen here. For those who may have just tuned in, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at what it's about, what democracy is about, and the meaning of never again. Our guests are Peter Balakian, professor, writer, poet, and Armenian uh, genocide expert, and Karen Murphy, director of international strategy at the website Facing History and Ourselves. Karen, we will get to you. I did want to uh, say about the cultural. You, you mentioned uh, cultural leaders. What about culture? Does Turkey today 
see the Armenian culture as a threat. I mean, they're Muslim, whereas the Armenian culture is largely Christian. Uh, do they just do they still see the Armenian culture as a threat, or is it not the case anymore? Well, there's so few Armenians left uh, in Turkey. There are uh-huh. less than 50,000 Armenians out of a population of 60 million. So I think, I think there's not much, not much worry in that sense. But I think what, what the Turkish state is afraid of is Armenian cultural identity worldwide. Because Armenian cultural identity, uh-huh. meaning in, in the republic, which is a border country, to Turkey, and Turkey has closed the border to Armenia after all this. Um, Armenians in the diaspora, mm-hmm. um, you know, more than a few million uh, mm-hmm. around the world, um, are a threat to the Turkish state because most of the Armenian community worldwide is shaped in some way by the events of the Armenian genocide and the additional traumatizing impact of Turkish refusal to deal with this history in any ethical way. Not only uh, have there not been any efforts toward restitution or Mm -hmm. reparation, Mm -hmm. there hasn't been an apology, there hasn't been an acknowledgement. It's really a, a horrific situation in a moral sense. And so... So the Turkish state, yeah, is threatened by the presence, the vitality uh, of Armenian culture worldwide, because it's always engaged and entangled with some dimensions of the genocide and its aftermath. And that's always pressure on Turkey to, to start fessing up. And when it was happening at the time, I mean... It, it went on, actually, for kind of a long time. The, the, the war, the First World War, then called the Great War, officially ended in 1918, but a lot of it still goes on today. How is it that the Turks continued their policy against Armenians until 1923? There's always a continuation of eradication. Oh, right. It wasn't complete, um, sure. You yeah. know, there wasn't a finite moment where Armenians were completely gone from Turkey. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea that the, the destruction continued in many ways and shapes, a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot for historians and scholars to, to, to note or debate about what happened after the war. And just as an aside, Great Britain demanded that the Ottoman state put on war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, trial uh-huh. in 1919-1920, and some of the architects of the Armenian genocide were um, tried and sentenced to death, oh. as were the entire ruling leadership of the Ottoman state, where they were tried and sentenced to death, but they had all fled the country. Uh, a lot. Yeah, with the... Jimal, Nazim and Shakir and others, and most of them were assassinated by Armenian Avengers. But let me come back to you asking what one one way the process of genocide continued after World War One calls our attention to the fact that genocide is not only about killing human beings; it's about destroying culture, right. and that means material culture, and that means churches libraries, schools, 
Um, it means killing the cultural producers themselves, burning their books, their sacred texts, destroying their houses. So that process has gone on for a long time. The eradication of Armenian culture inside of Turkey is an enormous treasure that's been destroyed. I mean, 2,500 churches and monasteries, that's an extraordinary number of losses for for genocidal cultural destruction. And Raphael Lemkin, uh, the great Polish-Jewish legal scholar who coined the term genocide and based a lot of his... um, Mean his definition of the term genocide as a crime in international law on the Armenian case was Lemkin, who who went to great lengths to write about the um, eradication of culture as a very important component to genocide. So you you definitely want want readers and listeners who are studying this domain of human of human uh, barbarism to yeah. understand this part. Of it. Well, certainly in, you know, that, that's not the only place, unfortunately, in the in America, you know, wiping out the culture of the people who were here first. And Australia is particularly bad for that. They took children away from the Aboriginal yeah. people just to destroy Absolutely. their culture. That happened in the United States as well. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I said that happened in the United States as well. Yes. And in Canada, yeah. Well, Canada, at least, I believe, they is- they did issue an apology for what they did to the uh, indigenous population, and I kind of wish... They had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, and have also adopted um, quite a robust curriculum as well as other examples of memory. And adding to what Peter said, I think that... Um, the idea that genocide is, uh, it continues when denial is present. The denial is the yes. final stage of, deni- of genocide is, is important to remember. Ooh. Denial Very is much. F- yeah, and deni- the genocide may have stopped, but the denial goes on. And that's, that's really scary. And that's where it comes in today and for the future, because it's important to as some would say, face history. And Karen, in your, in your article on facing history on the Facing History website, you mentioned Congressman Gerald Ford on the 50th anniversary of the start of the genocide in 1965. Tell us about that, please, and what happened on the topic when he became president. Well, he, like many, became reluctant to acknowledge the genocide And that should be contextualized. Part of that has to do with what Peter talked about and the American alliance with Turkey and fear of harming that alliance. But part of it is also tied to a bigger context regarding the United States, I think. You know, we didn't acknowledge the genocide convention or become a signatory until 1988. So during that time, we wouldn't even have formally acknowledged Genocide. Um, Then then there's also the issue that the U.S. has been resistant to acknowledging our own violent past. And that way, and that was part of our reluctance to um, sign on to the U.N. Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. But we're also often outsiders to international alliances, (laughs) conventions, Institutions. And an example right. of that would be the International Criminal Court. You know, we were yes. involved in 
its formation of the Rome Statute, but have resisted being a, a signatory. Um, and, and so that's part of also a dynamic in terms of American um, foreign policy and our relationship to the world. Well, what, what about this, this? I'm curious about Congressman Gerald Ford in 1965 and when he became president. Did he, did he switch his position? He was from Michigan. He, he became reluctant to acknowledged the genocide uh, and was, yeah, was resistant to the idea of um, acknowledgement in part because of he, you know, he argued that it would hurt our alliance with Turkey. But I think it also fits in this larger context of reasons why Americans in general um, often, you know, don't, don't acknowledge um, the violent past in this country as well. I'm talking about saving or kind of uh, keeping democracy alive. And this is, uh, and I think, facing history in ourselves is such an amazing organization yes. and a vital educational organization because its mission is about critique, the, the ethical and moral necessity for critiquing uh, history and um, what this means for a democracy yes. to have critical thinking and critical reasoning and to take ethical responsibility for crimes. There's no nation on the planet that hasn't committed crimes against segments of people, ethnic mm. groups, its own population. But but it, it, democracies are defined, I hope, in part by an ability to deal, um, to face history with ethical um uh, perspectives. So it is really key. It's so important to face that real history. I mean, myth is so much easier. You know, we can all think of the wonderful myths we were taught as kids about America. You know, but the reality is something we have to understand. And I wish I could remember the exact quote from Emma Goldman, one of my favorites of the 20th century, who said something about uh, she considers herself a patriot, that it's like uh, love between a man and a woman. You don't see perfection. You see the imperfections, and you still love it anyway. So, you know, we have, to, we have to do that. We have to face this history, in my opinion, and obviously yours as well. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we're, we're talking about uh, never again, what happened between the Ottoman Empire and, and uh, Armenia, and why it matters today, why we need to take a look at that, why it's important to understand such things and face history to face ourselves. And I'm curious about, you know, back when it was happening. I mean, before the U.S. got into the First World War, most people in America were against going in the war, but then became, you know, Woodrow Wilson uh, had a tremendous propaganda campaign. But what, what about American public opinion as the atrocities were happening? Uh, some American Committee for Near East Relief, what was that? So there was some American awareness. I'm glad Peter, I know, is going to start talking about this, and I'm so glad because one thing I want to flag about it, as he does, is how important it is to learn about these efforts and that these were not secrets taking place in the dark of night, but people were aware and active, and Peter's work on this part of the history is extraordinary. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, well, it seems like you know yeah, your well, stuff. Thank, Both of you do. Thank you. That's kind of you, Karen. I would say this, that um, um, to understand 
the large institutional and grassroots movements to send relief and create rescue for Armenians during the period of genocide, 1915 through the end of World War I. You have to go back to the mid-1890s when this Armenia grassroots movement in the U.S. began. And it began in response to the first wave of wholesale killing of Armenians in 1894, 5, and 6. Almost, well, somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 Armenians were killed uh, under the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And this was a reprisal. And I think, you know, scholars argue that this is part of the genocide. You really can't separated from what happened in 1915, but it was a reprisal against what I was noting earlier, Armenian civil rights protests for equality for Christians under the um, Islamic uh, and the Muslim uh, Turkic uh, constitution. And so uh, you have a wave of mass killing that is shocking to people in the West. At, at, at least to, um, uh, you know, I'm talking about North America here right. in Western right. Europe areas, which I've studied the most. And that that kind of uh, catapulted a really extraordinary grassroots movement and a relief and rescue movement to the extent that Clara Barton, the founder mm. of the American Red Cross, took the first international Red Cross relief mission ever to the Armenian provinces no of Ottoman Turkey in 1896. She she had done plenty of Red Cross movements in the U.S., but not out of the country. Uh-huh. Now, that would be followed quickly by Red Cross work in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, but the Armenian event actually precedes it. So that's worth noting. Yeah. So that when, um, when the Near East when the Near East Relief Foundation starts its rescue relief project during World War One, that is already a context for it to, and a history and tradition for it to draw on. And it did begin, as you noted, uh, Bert, in nineteen in October of nineteen fifteen, as the Committee on Armenian uh, Relief, the relief of Armenian atrocities, and it morphed into a broader. Uh, umbrella near East Relief. So it wasn't only Armenians that were being focused on for mm-hmm. rescue relief. Mm-hmm. It was Assyrians, Greeks, Arabs, and other peoples who were being decimated yes. uh, in the wake of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and often by the Turkish state. You know, there's a combination. Some of these groups were targeted, others were just being ground under in the the, the, the killing of World War One, and over what would be the equivalent of about a billion and a half dollars was raised yeah. and sent overseas for this movement between nineteen you know fifteen and into the early nineteen twenty. So it was an enormous movement, and it was um, you know it was backed by industrialists yeah. uh, as well as Protestant missionaries who who play a ambiguous and somewhat checkered <laughs> role in all of this. But yeah, well. in fact, they were great supporters of the Christian peoples of, of the Ottoman sure. Empire, but they were 
They were trying to play it a little bit on both sides of the I fence. Understand. They have a, a long uh, history, as as you say, and uh, you know it is. In, in talking about why it's important to learn from history, it's not just the bad stuff that we need to face. The the, the grassroots action was terrific. That's something, it's really something to be proud of, that the American people, at least some of us, cared about this and did get involved. And there's a long history of grassroots uh, movement to help people around the world in so many different cases. And, and this should be known as well. Now, of course, there is no longer an Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was they who committed the genocide. There's Turkey now. Should they be held responsible for what the Ottoman Empire did? Well, again, I think this this speaks to, and Karen will talk about this, this speaks to facing history and ourselves. Every nation has to honestly deal with its history yes. and sure. make a distinction, a distinction between, shall we say, personal involvement, because no, no one is alive right. who is personally responsible, but there comes to be a kind of new responsibility for the crime if one is denying the crime. So, you know, if we look at the U.S., uh, white, white supremacists didn't own plantations or fight to keep slavery as an institution, but by celebrating the Confederacy and by promulgating dimensions of white supremacy, they become extenders of a of horrible human rights crime history in this country. Well, the same is true, I think, in other societies where where citizens and or a, gov- a whole government structure refuses to deal with the history properly, it starts becoming a continuation and an accomplice. And um, yes. That is really a problem. That is a tragic problem that, that really interferes with human rights, civil society, and democracy in so many spots of the globe. Karen, I know you have stuff to add to that. Is this question about um, working through the past or coming to terms with the past and a national responsibility and also what you might call individual or communal responsibility or civic accountability, I think is an important one. And there are examples of countries like Germany, for example, Mm -hmm. that have argued um, pretty forcefully in law and public policy and practice um, that there is a national responsibility, a commitment to memory, particularly to the Holocaust. Um, So I think that this question about how you do it is pretty multi faceted. You know, there are Mm -hmm. things like Peter talked about. There could be reparations, restoration initiatives, truth commissions, memorialization. And where facing history fits is in terms of education. And so this question about why study this history, I mean, one, there are many reasons. One would be to remember the victims and their descendants. Another is, and and this goes to, I think, um, what Peter put so well about Teaching history from our perspective is not about um, telling kids what to think and how to think. It is providing them with the the 
skills and the knowledge and the behaviors and the tools so that they can ask questions, including why and how, mm-hmm. and and come to these, draw these conclusions themselves. And so one thing they need to consider is what happens when a genocide and mass violence are not formally acknowledged, when they are denied or misrepresented. And the story of the Armenian genocide, not just because of Turkish denial, but how long it took to be formally acknowledged by so many places, including the United States, is that victims bear the burden of telling their stories, of proving what happened. And that's true in the United States, too. I mean, the history of lynching, for example, we didn't mm-hmm. get an anti-lynching bill passed until this year. It took 100 years. Um, and so you often have the people who were historically marginalized, abused, terrorized, who bear the burden of not just memory, but of proving the legacies of that memory and saying this thing here is related to that thing there, whether it's about police brutality or injustice or looking at issues like imprisonment rates or inequality in the United States, for example. The, the burden of trying to say, look, there's a relationship here. When you look at the beauty of the 1619 Project, um, oh, yeah. that was, you know, led by the New York Times, one of those elements was saying, look, you can see the foundation here for so many things that flowed from it. Or Ta-Nehisi Coates' wonderful article for The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, and how he shows, in particular through one man's story, that you can see the legacies of, of slavery and Jim Crow um, up until the present day for African-Americans. So I think that having young people be able to understand the implications of that um, are important. I think Peter also raised an, another issue about um, studying a history where denial and lack of acknowledgement have um, really taken hold. And, and one form that takes is the transmission of trauma from generation to generation. And a lack of acknowledgement affects individuals, communities, and the relationships among people and nations. And there's also, as he rightly said, an ethical component to teaching the history of genocide. It means acknowledging human suffering and decision-making in in its many forms. Um, It's an act of witnessing. Well, no wonder. I was just going to say, no wonder the right wing doesn't like teaching history. They don't want students to be able to think critically and to see things that are not the myth. You know, as our That's Attorney right. General Bill Barr said, uh, oh, history is written by the victors. Well, we have to make sure that it's not. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what Hitler said, you know, and, and that for that to be said in the, in the halls of government in this country is yeah. shocking. It's, it's an outrage to our civilization. And I do think, you know, it is true that we've seen this important change in 2019 in terms of the American position acknowledgement. But it's also true that we need to remain vigilant because we've seen how global commitments to prevention and the rule of law and Mm. to institutes and norms, um, they're not fixed. They, these are these are fluid and have to be protected each generation, which means each generation has to make meaning of it. 
It's not just something that's sort of passed on emptily. You know, young people um, need to decide for themselves that the commitment to memory is actually something that they need to sustain. And I would just add, you know, as we're talking about the impact of denialism and the falsification of history, Mm. the, the famous statement by Hitler made eight days before invading Poland in 1939, you know, remains uh, one of the more memorably, you know, one of the more memorable and important phrases of its kind in modern history. Hitler said, who today, after all, speaks of the annihilation of the Armenians? And for him, it was a triumph of amnesia that yeah. contributed, I'm, I don't want to suggest it was the only factor in his mind, but sure. it contributed to his being emboldened, of his saying exactly what Barr, he was just quoting Barr, yes. history's only written by the winners. And that was a, that's a very fascist yep. Um, yep. idea, and it's anti-democratic. Oh, yeah. And Hitler, Hitler's understanding that if you can wash great human rights crimes down the memory hall, and to come back to our discussion about the grassroots uh, movement for Armenian rescue and relief, I would also note that the, and, and Karen noted this as well, the Armenian massacres, as they were called in the 19-teens, constituted hundreds of large articles in the New York Times and other major mm. American papers, an article a day, two articles a day nationwide. Wow. This was a major, major media-covered event. And for Hitler to note that 20 years later it's been washed down the memory hole tells us how important it is to face history, to cultivate memory as a moral dimension, and to cultivate critical thinking as a foundation of democracy. Without it, we're, we're in trouble. Oh, and they know it. The, the, the right wing, the Trump people, not just them. I mean, they're a symptom. But they know that uh, you don't want to have critical thinking. They've been cutting funding for education for years and years and years. And uh, but kids like it, you know, I have two daughters and, you know, I know that they're fascinated by civil rights struggle and things like that. And so it's so important to do it. And, you know, we all know that (laughs) erasing history has been so important to powers that be. You got to erase history. Otherwise, you can't keep doing what you're doing. Uh, but uh, and it, yeah. it it's important to this day. Now I remember in 2016, yeah. I was somewhat enthused. There was an attempted coup against the government of Erdogan in Turkey, for which many of us in the U.S. were cheering. That's uh, a slight uh, you know uh, detour here. But what can you tell us about that? And I was really hoping they'd win, but they didn't. The coup has engendered a lot of theory and speculation on the left and there's a there, there there was a good left in turkey and there are a lot of, i do want to say there are a lot of wonderful turkish scholars and citizens and uh-huh. activists who are very much on the side of acknowledging armenian genocide kurdish human rights abuses and violence greek genocide of greeks and assyrians so there, there there is a progressive 
population in Turkey, but it has been severely battered by Erdogan yeah. in the last uh, five years, four years since the attempted coup. I don't know what to say. The coup was a, either a military attempt from the inside to take Erdogan mm. out, or it's been suggested mm-hmm. that Erdogan himself planned the coup as a pretext for his own taking right. uh, over the, the the state in a completely totalitarian way. I, I'm not in you know, I'm not a Turkologist. Right. I don't follow the, the minutia of contemporary political life, but um, it doesn't sound like the coup ever had much, much momentum. I mean, I think it was silenced. But it, 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 Turkey is now locked into one of the darkest episodes in the 20th century. There's so much oppression. And I mentioned here the, the great philanthropist and progressive human rights leader, Osman Kavala is in prison now, and he's been in prison for three years, and he's one of the greatest people in the world, in my Mm. opinion. Mm. I mean, somebody who combines Nelson Mandela with George Soros. And um, if if you can put Osman Kavala in prison without any hope for release, it's just symbolic of so much more that's just completely gone um, into the most deep repression inside of Turkey today. So, very difficult situation. Well, I'd love to visit Turkey for its historic architecture, but I don't want to support that government. I mean, their treatment for the of the Kurdish nation, you know, it it's like... It's horrible. It's horrible. What they did to the Armenians, like, it, and the Kurdish nation oh my goodness they they deserve a nation too in my opinion um yes absolutely and, well look i think it's the point that's been made there have not there have never been minority rights uh, in either the ottoman empire or, or modern turkey, turkey. it's yeah, never well. been minority rights and it's worth noting you know turkey leads the world almost every year in imprisoned journalists oh terrific it's your <laughs> Turkey, China, Syria, the, the top three in imprisoning journalists. So it tells you something about repression. No doubt. I do uh, want to add one more thing. I was just going to say Trump is probably jealous of that, but go ahead. Yes, well, <laughs> apropos of that, as you were, you were noting the importance of facing history, Ronald Reagan's parting words to the nation, as I recall them, mm. Say something nice about America. Now, any any head of state who would have a, a who would make a statement that's simplistic and cliche, yeah, I think is 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 embodies this terrible part of movement conservatives' refusal to want to affirm and engage in critical discourse about the nation and its past. It's, it's just, it's just, a, it, it's a terrible yeah. uh, failure and we can't succumb to it because a lot of the nation does want to face history. Yeah. I get a lot from it. I mean, there's, there's a lot that I'm proud of and some stuff that yikes, we really do have to face. I mean, for example, lynching, you know, I mean, come on, at least we seem to be getting there, but then again, uh, racist uh, attacks continue. But that's sort of another subject, but not really. And there's the phrase, never again. 
after the Nazi genocide against the Jews and uh, Romani and so many others, the phrase never again was embraced by many. It's very nice words. What does it really mean in action? I mean, is, is it safe to assume that there will be never again or how, you know, is vigilance still There's required? Already, Go ahead. Vigilance is absolutely required. I mean, after that became sort of a philosophy that was embraced by some and, you know, in the post-World War II period, extraordinarily, there was hope. I mean, in the yeah. middle of so much chaos, there was hope. And new institutions were created, like the United Nations and, and things like the Genocide Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, yes. And this idea that it was actually possible to um, uphold humanitarian principles and that states would be bound in relationship to each other, not by law, but by the idea that actually a state can't commit grave violations against its citizens, that it has to protect their rights. And we saw, we've seen the erosion, a lack of check. There have been genocides, of course, since then. You know, Srebrenica, Rwanda, Cambodia, um, Darfur. And a question I think for all of us is, where is that anti-genocide movement that we saw beginning a little bit in the um, 2000s, in part, as people um, around the world, but including the United States, learned more about the Rwandan genocide and the failure to act, and were triggered, I think, in part by shame. But there was attention to Darfur in particular, and we've seen... Um, really a, a decrease in attention in terms of yeah. um, genocide awareness. And I would say part of that is also, um, I don't like the idea of compassion fatigue. It worries me um, for many, but I, I'm also concerned by the idea that um, we can both from the right and a nationalist isolationist perspective, turn away from the world, but we can also do it from a progressive position too where it's almost like we need to only focus on what's happening here as if we can't do two things at once. But yeah. it's also, I think, um, uh, there's not a lack of media coverage. There's lot, not a lack of knowledge and awareness in terms of things happening in the world. But I think that there is... Um, uh, a lack of a, a, a belief that we can actually do anything about it. And I think right. about the development of that idea, the responsibility to protect that Madeleine Albright and others ushered in uh -huh. and um, what it would mean for us to actually want to enforce something like that, to really operationalize the idea of, of never again. So what can people do sitting in their homes, isolated, online you know is there uh places they can you know if they want to send some money and the website the uh, uh facing history facing ourselves if you could uh give some people some things to do if they want to do stuff well i mean one thing they can do first of all so our website's facinghistory.org we are an educational organization but there's plenty of material there if you aren't a teacher or um, mm -hmm. a parent of adolescents, if you're looking for materials on these histories, there's material on the Armenian genocide itself. If you want to learn more on um, Raphael Lemkin, 
there's a beautiful documentary um, that we have. Uh, we work with filmmakers who made a film called Watchers of the Sky. And mm. uh, part of that is about Raphael Lemkin. And another part is about the amazing Ben Perrin. And we are coming up on the 75th anniversary of Nuremberg, um, which is also a, a really um, mm-hmm. powerful reminder. And I bet I have the years wrong. You're going to have to check me on that. Um, it's a powerful reminder, though, about the importance of the rule of law, that it's not just to prevention, the never again component, but it's also about the idea that justice matters. Um, and then there are there are obviously organizations um, that are doing great work, like Freedom House on Democracy, um, Human Rights Watch. Um, there's the Enough Project, um, which is doing active work um, on genocide prevention and, and the prevention of mass violence. Um, so there are a lot of places people can go to learn more. Well, thank you so much. It's been very, very informative and encouraging, actually, that we can, we're not powerless. We are not powerless. We can do things and we can look at history, learn from it, and take the appropriate lessons. Thank you, Peter Balakian and Karen Murphy. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Thank you.